At the end of the 19th century, Dr. Leslie Keeley claimed to have invented a cure to solve the addiction crisis he saw in the United States. In order to deliver this cure, Keeley opened at least one treatment center in every U.S. state. His cure? Injecting gold into the veins of his patients. Chase a dragon along a gilded path on this episode of Footnoting History. Hey Footnoters, it's Josh. It's been a while. Actually, it's been since September when I was talking about that little uprising in Sicily and how it transformed the Mediterranean. I'll get to Dr. Keeley in a minute, but I wanted to take just a second here to say a special thanks to our other hosts for picking up my slack the last couple of months. Some stuff's been going on. And that stuff is, I was diagnosed with kidney cancer just after the Sicilian Vespers episodes aired. I'm okay, we caught it early, and we think we got it all. With just one surgery, man, it's scary. And I think it's gonna be scary for a while. Christine, Kristen, Lucy, and Sam are all the sweetest people. They not only made sure that I could recover without having to worry about prepping and recording another episode, they sent me cookies to aid in that recovery. So if you were ever wondering if our hosts are as awesome in real life like they seem on the podcasts, I can assure you, they are. So thanks, y'all. You're lifesavers. Literally. Also, we have a Q&A episode coming up. Please visit footnotinghistory.com slash Q&A to submit your questions for us. Please, please, please ask Christine about the Mets or about the History Boys. Just take that note. Speaking of saving lives, let's talk about Dr. Leslie Keeley, the Keeley Institute, and of course, the Gold Cure. Just a quick content warning, we're going to talk about drugs and addiction in this episode. Know your limits. And remember, we've got hundreds of other episodes on your favorite podcasting site and YouTube. So let's start with an admission. Americans have had a tumultuous relationship with controlled substances. I would even go as far as to say that we, at various times in our nation's history, have had a problem. I want you to consider this astonishing fact. By the 1830s, every American over the age of 15 was on average drinking 7.1 gallons of alcohol every year. I mean, I know I barely remember my early 20s, but I know I didn't drink that much. Also, I drank wine coolers. I don't know why I need to share that with you, but that eh, there it is. So, 7.1 gallons of alcohol per year. By comparison, these days, Americans drink somewhere in the neighborhood of about 2.3 gallons on an average year. That's an uptick, thanks to COVID, of course. I, there's a play on the word shots lurking here, but I'll leave it to you, good listener, to finish that joke for yourself. I hope it involves Little John. If you need further proof of the United States alcohol problem, let me point you towards a bar tab accumulated by the founding fathers of the United States one night after working diligently to write our Constitution. 55 guests, including George Washington himself, drank 54 bottles of Madeira, 60 bottles of Claret, 
eight bottles of whiskey, eight bottles of cider, 12 bottles of beer, and seven large bowls of punch. One of my mentors in grad school told our class that those bowls were so large that it was said ducks could swim in them. Could you imagine? Oh, I can. And I imagine that Benjamin Franklin was at the center of all of it. I just imagine that guy leading a Madeira bottle chugging contest. George Washington was probably the judge. He's the respectable one after all. There were 54 bottles, 55 men. Somebody had to sit out in my scenario. Anyway, like alcohol, opium use is almost as old as human history itself. Its use as a painkiller was well known by the Sumerians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Islamic empires of the pre-modern world, and Europe during the Middle Ages. We also know that opium was a major instrument of the colonization of China in the 19th century during the Opium Wars of that century. I really want to do an episode on the Opium Wars in the future. Then you'll know me as the apocalypse and drug guy. Mom's very proud. While opium use was indeed present in the United States, it wasn't really until after the Civil War that opium use became a serious cause of public concern. Any campaign against opium would have had to have dovetailed with the temperance movements that began more or less in the 1830s. These temperance movements campaigned against the sale and use of alcohol specifically. In fact, being a part of the American Temperance Society, the largest of the temperance societies in terms of sheer numbers and influence, marked a U.S. citizen as somebody of having good, moral, middle-class sensibilities. And of course, the 1830s were a time of mass immigration to the United States, and native-born white middle-class Americans wanted to make sure that they separated themselves from the hard-drinking, uncouth new arrivals. That's really the nicest way I can put it, because my goodness, the words that the people used at the time are not fit for this podcast. From about the 1830s forward, in the United States at least, opium users were understood as exactly that, just users, not addicts. The concept of addiction and addict and all of the baggage that comes with it, it's all constructed with social meaning as much as it is with medical meaning. Think about how we discuss people who are addicted to video games versus people who are addicted to nicotine versus alcoholics versus users of methamphetamine. A separation between cocaine addicts and meth addicts clearly exists because of the class connotations each drug brings with it. Well, perhaps the most influential voice in terms of how Americans conceived of opium use at this time came from author and commentator Fitzhugh Ludlow, who, after writing a book called The Hashish Eater, published an article called What Shall They Do to Be Saved? Ludlow theorized that opium, and alcohol for that matter, destroyed the freedom and independence of the human will. As such, the use of opium and other narcotics stole away what made Americans American. But most importantly, as historian Timothy Hickman observes, 
Ludlum was among the first to encode the discussion of opium addiction in the language of disease. This is much more like how we discuss opioid and alcohol addiction today as a disease of the brain. Think about what you know of Alcoholics Anonymous and their 12-step program. This will be a very important idea to Keeley when we get to him. Historians of narcotics and addiction identify a key inflection point for the use of opium in the later 19th century, the introduction of the hypodermic syringe for injection. What made the syringe so onerous in terms of conceiving of opium habits was that it was a tool of modern technology. Let's face it, as much as we enjoy our iPhones, Alexa, and all of the other modern conveniences at our disposal, we are also deeply suspicious of that technology. For reference, see the Terminator films. Also, if I just set your Amazon device off, I apologize. Let me make it up to you. Hey Google, play Rick Astley. Never gonna give you up. You're welcome and I'm sorry. Well, human suspicion of technology was also present in the late 19th century America, and the sorts of advances that the United States and indeed many other nations around the world achieved were tremendous. Indeed, we call this period the Second Industrial Revolution, and along with things like expanding railroads, steel mills, and college football, medicine was in a significant moment of advancement. This rate of technological change made a lot of Americans very nervous. It especially made men nervous. Much like the first industrial revolution before it, the new technology of the second industrial revolution caused many men to believe that masculinity was imperiled by the comforts of modern life. Of course, it's much more than this. There were lots of men who felt less than because they did not have the opportunities to fight in a glorious war like their fathers did. There was no civil war for them to engage in. If you've ever wondered why Teddy Roosevelt's example of masculinity was so captivating at the time, and quite frankly still is for a lot of American men now, this is a pretty good reason why. It's also why college football started to take off. That, that, that's an, another story that I should probably tell, and I think Mom might actually be proud of that one. In any event, commentators like George Miller Beard and Dr. Hamilton Wright identified habitual opium use as a new feature of the modern United States. Or, put another way, habitual opium use was a symptom of the disease of modernity. This is the world which Leslie Keeley, the actual subject of our episode, made his way in. This was a world in which alcoholism and habitual opium use presented a perceived existential threat to the American way of life and something in dire need of a cure. Dr. Keeley had one such cure. Dr. Keeley earned his medical credentials at the Rush Medical College in Chicago, and shortly after graduating, entered the Union Army as a surgeon, about halfway or so through the Civil War. After the war ended, Dr. Keeley settled in Dwight, Illinois, and eventually opened his first institute, or clinic, in 1880. 
During his time in the Union Army, Dr. Keeley took note of the wounded men and their developing opium and morphine habits in order to deal with the immense pain caused by battlefield injuries. Now, I want to be clear about something. Yes, there was opium to go around, but let's not completely forget the horrors of the Civil War battlefield hospital. Thinking about those places always sends a shiver up my spine. Keeley, taking note of these soldiers' habits, sought after a cure once the war had concluded. The cure that he found, the quote-unquote gold cure, was what was administered to alcoholics and opium addicts at the Institute in Dwight, Illinois. And so, at long last, we finally get to the cure itself. And why have I been delaying and delaying? Well, to give you historical context, of course. But also, there's not a lot to discuss about the cure itself, thanks to Keeley keeping the cure a complete secret. Well, he kept the formula a secret. He offered his patients injections of a quote-unquote bichloride of gold. Four injections per day, to be exact. But what the heck is a bichloride? And why gold? I'll let you in on a little secret. Since Keeley's keeping secrets, I guess I have to give you one of mine. And here's that secret. I failed my second semester of high school chemistry. I was a terrible student. I'm probably not the best person to explain what a bichloride is. I assume it involves two things of chlorine, but that's only because I know Latin. Gold, however, is a much more significant item for our consideration. Now, let's get this out of the way immediately. This isn't some weird medieval alchemy stuff. I mean, we could talk about that for sure. And maybe that's something else I'll do an episode on in the future, but that is not what we're after here. Keeley had some interesting ideas about what gold could do. But before we get to that, we need to understand Keeley's understanding of physiological addiction. Prior to the advent of modern addiction science and medicine, medical experts and, indeed, the general public thought of alcoholics and drug users as people of low moral fiber who drank and did drugs because of that distinct lack of morality. In other words, you do drugs because you're a bad person, not because the drugs have had a deleterious effect on your brain. This should make a bit of sense to us, because a lot of people still see addicts in this way, especially people who use drugs habitually. Keeley, like many of his contemporaries, began to rethink this. Rather than immorality causing drug use, Keeley proposed that drug and alcohol use acted as a poison on the nerves of the body, but especially in the brain. In fact, with opium in particular, the drugs changed the very fiber of nerves themselves, which then in turn led to immoral decision-making. So this is Keeley positing that drug and alcohol addiction is a disease, not a continued series of poor moral choices. In fact, drug use, Keeley argued, took away a person's ability to make a choice in the first place. They became enslaved to the substance, tapping into that conception of addiction that we talked about earlier in the episode. 
The bichloride of gold, Keeley proposed, had the opposite effect as these poisons. According to his theory, gold primarily affected nerve tissue that is most unstable or that is highest in its complex development and function, namely the brain. As a result, Keeley proposed that gold would heal brain nerves from the poisons of alcohol and opium and restore them to full functioning. If alcohol and opium had the power to destroy the human will, gold had the power to awaken and unleash it. When a patient had quote-unquote been to Dwight, as the phrase from visiting the first Keeley Institute goes, the treatment mandated a four-week-long stay for alcoholics and a five-week-long stay for opium addicts. While at Dwight, patients did not have to do much at all. They had their required injections four times daily at 8 a.m., 12 p.m., 5 p.m., and 7.30 p.m. They greeted new arrivals to Dwight who came by train, and they were there to walk as much as possible. They were completely free to move about the town at their leisure, but there were restrictions. They could not gamble. They could not smoke. They were required to eat well and bathe regularly. Patients could not consume soda, could not use cars, and could not fraternize with patients of the opposite sex. The Keeley Institute at Dwight was quite a success. Not only did Keeley eventually open the Livingston Hotel next door to the Institute, but the railroad company that serviced Dwight built a new station right across the street from the Institute so that patients could immediately enter care. In fact, there were stretchers available for men who were too drunk to walk. Keeley also franchised his institutes. He offered franchisees the opportunity to establish their own Keeley Institute for the buy-in cost of $50,000. Keeley would train all of the staff in Dwight, Illinois, so as to be sure the patients who used franchised institutes were offered the same level of service that they would at the Home Institute. Costs for patients ran about $100 to $200 in 1891. To put it in perspective, that's about $3,100 and $6,200 in today's money. Patients also had to pay $21 per week for housing and $3 per day for an attendant. So let's do the math, which anytime I say that, you should be scared, but let's do it. We'll split the difference and say we paid $150 for treatment. If we were opium users, we would pay a total of $360 for the complete treatment. That's including room and board and the attendant. So adjusted for inflation, that comes out to be $11,223.93 today. That's not a small amount of money. Keeley, in fact, did quite well for himself. He made a fortune. Between 1880 and 1920, the Keeley Company made about $2.7 million. We'll conservatively say that that's about $80 million in 2022 money. He was treating about 700 patients in Dwight Daly. He franchised over 200 locations, including institutes in Mexico, the UK, Sydney, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. Admittedly, the international clinics didn't do very well. He also sold the bichloride of gold through the mail. 
$5 for tobacco, $8 for neurasthenia, a catch-all for mental illness, $9 for alcohol, $10 for opium. So, okay, that's all well and good, but you want to know if it worked. And that's a complicated question. If we take Keeley's word for it, he said his cure had a 95% success rate. Between 1880 and 1920, the Institute treated 500,000 patients. So if Keeley was correct, that's 475,000 addicts cured. Graduates of the Institute often wrote glowing testimonials and gave referrals to friends. In fact, graduates even wore gold K-pins to signal their accomplishment and met with other graduates in Keeley clubs around the United States. So I think it's safe to say that there were a lot of satisfied customers. Certainly Keeley's peers in the medical profession had their doubts, and Keeley's cure was very quickly dismissed as quackery. Part of the issue, though, was that Keeley refused to disclose his formula. He always kept it secret. So when an organization like the American Medical Association came knocking and looking for proof of the injection's efficacy, Keeley wouldn't provide it. One of the articles that I put in the bibliography looks at this problem in detail. Essentially, the suspicions of Keeley and the dismissal of his cure came down to two models of how to produce medical knowledge. Keeley preferred to do his R&D in a private laboratory, whereas the medical community at the time preferred to come to knowledge slowly through clinical discovery and shared data. I also think there's something to be said about the economic culture of the United States, especially in the 1880s and 1890s. This is the height of the Gilded Age, if you'll pardon the pun, the gold standard of the United States' competitive capitalism. I'm sure Keeley was feeling the fever of the market and wanted to capitalize on his proprietary formula and eliminate his competition. Now, to our modern eyes, I think we can all pretty much agree that this is some pretty grade-A snake oil stuff. If injections could cure substance addiction of all kinds, especially alcoholism, we'd be using it. But also, look at methadone clinics. I'm a bit uneasy about making such an equivalence, but that's how it works. For my money, it's everything surrounding the injections themselves that might explain the treatment's success. Not the injections. But think about what Keeley's offering. A safe environment free from temptation, an encouragement to eat healthy and exercise daily, a daily routine, peer support groups in both treatment and outside of the institute, and coming to an understanding that your addiction is a disease rather than a sign of your abject moral failure. That sounds like a recipe for success. And indeed, I think the placebo effect can explain a lot here. We're fairly sure that the cure Keeley offered didn't even have gold in it, even if Keeley insisted that it did. So let's end with a question that I always like to pose. What do we do with the story of Dr. Leslie Keeley and the gold cure? Is it just a passing fascination with 19th century medical ideas? Is it a commentary on Americans' willingness to believe that there is a miracle cure for just about anything? Should it make us suspicious of the medical establishment? My answers are maybe, yes, not necessarily. But actually, let me go full historian here and say, well, it's complicated. 
I certainly think that this is a story about the continuing struggle with modernity in the United States, both in terms of the need for such a cure as the result of further industrialization and in terms of the search for that cure. I think it's a story about how the medical community came to understand addiction differently. For all of Keeley's foibles, we can definitely say he had a rudimentary understanding of the way that we conceive of addiction now, at least medically. Most of all, in Keeley, I see the intersection of a man who I genuinely think wanted to help people and the competitive industrial capitalism of the late 19th century. I think it's striking that this intersection between care and profit is a constant tension in American society, even 140 years after the founding of the Keeley Institute. And oh, by the way, the Keeley Institute was open all the way until 1966. That's not that long ago. Finally, is it quackery? Sure. If Keeley knowingly deceived his patients into injecting something into their bodies that he knew would have no effect whatsoever. But I really do think he was a true believer. Perhaps arrogantly so. So what do you think? You should let us know, especially in a comment on this episode's YouTube page. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Footnoting History. Don't forget to head over to footnotinghistory.com for visuals, links, and sources related to the gold cure. Don't forget that all of our episodes are now on YouTube, complete with closed captions. Please go visit our channel, like our videos, and subscribe if you love it. Please do go to our website, footnotinghistory.com slash Q&A, and ask us some questions. Ask me about the Red Sox. I probably won't have a good answer for you. But you can ask... If you'd like to interact with us, we're on Twitter as at History Footnote, or Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest as at Footnoting History. We'd love to hear from you, and remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.